Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage case of the rattlesnake killer, Robert James. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, Dr. Shiloh. Hello, Dr. Scott. How are what you? Is, good, but what is it with you and snakes? Uh, you know, I do one thing on an Alabama snake crime, <laughs> and then you dig up another one. Like, geez. Oh, yeah. It's plentiful, apparently. We're just going to have to get you some Freudian dream interpretation for your snake stuff. <laughs> Uh-oh. Let's do it. Yikes. Okay. <laughs> hey, folks, welcome back. Our live stream this month is up for Saturday, November 18th at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we will be talking with N. Lee Hunt, the author of the book, I Don't Like Mondays, The True Story Behind America's First Modern School Shooting. We totally lucked out. This was just one of the amazing number of people that we met at CrimeCon UK earlier in the summer. And Mr. Hunt has a very interesting link to this particular school shooter crime story from the 1970s. So you've got to tune in. We need you there live to participate, to ask questions and be part of this. Of course, it's going to be available on YouTube and to our Patreons, but the more people there just makes it a, a really lively conversation. So please join us. Yes, absolutely. So last week, we actually re-released our episode on conservatorships, 5150s and the Britney Spears case since her memoir came out the week before. And we thought it helpful to sort of better understand the situation for those who maybe didn't hear the episode back in 2021 originally when we released it. Hey, I haven't read the book. Dr. Shiloh, what do you think of Brittany's memoir? I loved it. I thought it was great. I loved actually getting to hear from her. I think Michelle Williams reading it was an interesting and really good choice. Yeah. But you really get an idea how essentially this woman was in slavery for many, many years. And I had gone to one of her tours when this was the case. And I feel bad. I feel yucky about it, you know, being entertained when I know that she was under this conservatorship, working her butt off, yet under this category of essentially gravely disabled. So... Yeah, yeah, as we we covered that in the in the episode, it's really uncomfortable. I mean, it's yeah. it's uncomfortable even with all my experience with conservatorships, the more I think about it, the more really disturbing it is. But I'm glad to hear that she was able to find her voice to write this book and you know the magic of any kind of biography or autobiography is having a great editor. So I'm sure yeah. the publishing company really helped her like craft this story that would take people on a journey. And I'm, I'm glad that she let them, you know, there are some other people with similar challenges in their life who have written books and they refuse to allow people to help them. And what the message that comes out is really garbled. So mm, good for her. Good point. I'll, I'll have to, you'll have to lend it to me on the audible lending library or something. Okay. But our last original episode, the week before the re-release was the documentary review of I Love You, Now Die, The Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter. It was a two-part documentary that explores the controversial case of Michelle Carter, a teenager who was convicted in 2019 of involuntary manslaughter for encouraging her boyfriend to die by suicide via electronic communication of text messages. Yes. 
So today, as you mentioned, yes, we have covered a documentary about an Alabama man who may or may not have tried to kill his wife by rattlesnake bites. We also covered the vintage case of the killer couple that included the blonde rattlesnake, Burma White. I mean, yeah, I think we're starting to see a pattern here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because today we have a man that also has a rattlesnake moniker and used snakes in his crime and is from Alabama. Yeah. So it's all twisted up in LA vintage noir crime. Yeah, it must be just somebody's got a logo somewhere with a rattlesnake on it for these stories. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I had to. How could I come across this and not do it, right? Exactly, so, exactly. So in the story today, we are going to obviously talk about murder. We're going to talk about a little bit of intimate partner violence torture. There is mention of incest, although both parties are over the age of 18 in that case. So a lot of things twisted up in this relatively short episode for us, but just wanted to let you guys know to listen with care with all of those topics today. I love that you took the time to carve out like a little bit of contingency. It's like, there's a little <laughs> bit of incest, I mean, but they're both over the age of 18. Just sprinkled in there, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm sure there will be plenty of listeners with jokes about Alabama incest. So oh my gosh, that's to happen right. In the, in, the, in the South. And I am from Alabama, so there you go. So let me lead you into the crime that at least for the purposes of this story starts in Southern California. It was a tranquil summer evening in 1935 in the affluent Los Angeles neighborhood of La Cañada or the Canyon. Very creative name for an area of town, right? right? Yes. <laughs> it's like La Mesa, the table <laughs> in San yeah, Diego. I know. <laughs> James and Viola Pemberton, accompanied by their friend Robert S. James, made their way to his newly adorned residence on Verdugo Road for an anticipated dinner gathering. They eagerly awaited the arrival of Robert's 25-year-old spouse, a strawberry blonde named Mary, yet she was conspicuously absent and the house remained shrouded in darkness. So the trio initiated a search around the home for Mary with James Pemberton venturing into the backyard, illuminating a large hidden fish pond cloaked by thick vegetation. Later, when he was questioned about the incident, he said, my flashlight was directed towards the far side of the pond. I almost tripped over the figure before I spotted it. I peered down and there it was right at my feet. Then I cast my light upon it, revealing Mrs. James, sprawled with her face submerged in the water. Her golden locks danced atop the surface. Very poetic rendering of an right. interview description of a dead body. What wasn't obvious at that time was an unusual discolored puncture mark adorning the deceased woman's left big toe. And after a short inquest in which her husband said she was prone to fainting spells, her death was ruled a drowning. So let's talk about Robert James here. Originally, as we said, hailing from Alabama, Mary's husband, Robert James, entered the world as Major Raymond Lisenbaugh in 1895, born into the harsh circumstances of a destitute and abusive sharecropper family. As a young man, Raymond was plucked from the cotton fields by his brother-in-law, who who saw to it that he attended barber school. He was described as a pale man sporting a slicked back shock of red hair, eyes rimmed in red, and possessing a nasally high-pitched voice. His intellectual capacities were modest at best. According to a childhood acquaintance, he was deemed, quote, less than a half-wit. As this case evolved into the ensuing media spectacle characteristic of 1930s Los Angeles. Newspaper headlines would dub James a genuine lady killer whose meticulously groomed locks and smooth, beseeching Southern accent proved 
irresistible to women. So I'm trying to put all this together. We've got one description of him as having <laughs> a high nasally <laughs> voice with a shock of red hair, and he's less than a half wit. And yep. The other side is him being meticulously well, groomed and smooth so... and debonair like a true Southern gentleman. I'm guessing the story is going to lead us to how he has evolved as a con man over time. True. So, so he got his con <laughs> legs, I guess it was. There's very little information about his bride in the records, but we do know that Mary Emma Bush was born in February of 1907 in Iowa to parents Oscar and Anna. Now, Oscar and Anna primarily lived in Minnesota, and it's unknown when Mary actually came to Southern California because death records show that her parents both died in the state of Illinois. So it doesn't appear that they came out here as a family. But when she was just 25 years old, Mary answered an ad placed by the 38-year-old James for a manicurist position at his barbershop located at 9th and Olive in downtown Los Angeles. After working together for only a short time, they were married. But let's take a moment to recount James's marital history before he swept Mary off her feet, and it is a doozy. So in 1914, while James was still living in Birmingham, Alabama, he wed Maud Duncan, but their union quickly unraveled, leading to her filing for divorce, citing unconventional and sadistic sexual practices. This would have been a very, very big deal in 1914 for a woman to be able to make these claims in public to seek a divorce. So if it was this bad, it was probably a lot worse. Yeah, that was actuality. shocking to read that that was something that was public record, right. essentially. James relocated to Kansas to open a barber shop. He met and married Vera May, but this too ended in divorce after a confrontation in town with the father of a young pregnant woman. This all resulted in James being chased out of town and he fled as far as North Dakota, adopting the surname James. It was around this time his mother died, leaving him her life insurance and a new realm of possibilities opened up, the riches of life insurance fraud. James procured such a policy for his nephew and shortly after, his nephew died in a freak automobile accident after a malfunction with his steering wheel occurred. Without any explanation, James dispatched a telegram to his sister announcing her son's demise before it had even occurred. In 1932, he established another barbershop in North Dakota this time and entered into a marriage for the third time with Winona Wallace. She was also a striking blonde. He persuaded her to invest in a $14,000 life insurance policy designated him as the sole beneficiary. During their honeymoon in Colorado, he violently assaulted her with a hammer and sent her careening down a cliff in their car. Remarkably, she survived, but fortunately for James, she had no recollection of the incident. During her difficult recovery, she drowned in the bathtub and her demise was ruled, you guessed it, accidental. And James collected the insurance payout. I mean, is this like the first Drew Peterson here? Because... <laughs> This is a lot. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, and it's only half of it, really. Right. It, it gets better. This guy, or it gets worse. This guy is a true piece of work. And as we've talked about in other episodes, this period of time was particularly ripe for life insurance fraud because of the lack of ability for agencies across the U.S. to communicate with each other. There was no quick exchange of news. There was no way to investigate these claims as well as there is today. And also, it's in the modern world of writing insurance claims, you can't insure someone that is like someone you've not met or mm -hmm. someone you have a, you know, just a passing acquaintance with that used to exist. And now that all changed because of 
consters like this guy. Oh, it gets better. This guy is a piece of work. Now, with his pockets well-lined from his latest con, he returns to Alabama, showcasing some very fashionable attire and a brand new Pierce Arrow convertible. Remember, his previous vehicle had been destroyed when he sent it over the cliff with his wife inside. So now he's hardly settled back home, and he decides to seduce his 18-year-old niece, the daughter of the man who had gotten him into barber school. James and his niece left their very angry family behind in Alabama, and they both set off for Los Angeles, where he established yet another barber shop where his niece worked as one of the manicurists. Now, he was convinced he could execute another scheme. He entered into another marriage while keeping his niece on the sidelines. However, when he attempted to secure an insurance policy for wife number four, Ruth Thomas, she declined the mandatory medical examination due to her aversion to doctors. Consequently, James had the marriage immediately annulled. Wow. Did she dodge a bullet or what? Yeah, maybe literally she dodged a bullet. So prior to the annulment of their marriage, James had already hired 25-year-old Mary as yet another manicurist in the shop. They were quickly wed once he was done with Ruth, but unbeknownst to Mary, she had basically married the worst husband ever. By this time, he was a wily and experienced con artist and a man strongly suspected of having committed murder in the not-so-distant past. Shortly after their marriage, James persuaded Mary to procure a $10,000 life insurance policy for herself. Now, we already know that Mary eventually met her demise in the backyard of their home just three months after their marriage. Soon after Mary's death, James confidently attempted to cash in on the insurance policy signed by his wife. However, when an insurance investigator stumbled upon the revelation that the barber had had several former spouses with the unsettling fact that James's third wife had met her in through drowning as well, he promptly alerted the police. So now James's residence was discreetly wired by law enforcement, allowing them to eavesdrop for an entire month. They mostly captured the sounds of his numerous sexual encounters, most frequently with his niece, gross. So it looks like she was still in the picture somehow. It was during one of these encounters, however, that James was apprehended and subsequently charged with incest. The media, seizing on the sensationalism of that particular charge, began to dig deeper into the untimely deaths of his spouses. Now, simultaneously, on the day that the incest allegations made headlines, the police received information that a fry cook had been blabbing at a local watering hole about helping another man kill his wife. That fry cook was Charlie Hope, a major accomplice to James in the plot to murder his wife. Charlie came forward, pinning the whole crime in great detail on the red-headed serial husband. Following his apprehension on charges of incest, James was transported to a secure location for questioning. It was there that he finally broke and admitted guilt to his wife's demise, although he maintained that Charlie had orchestrated the murder. When his niece, who had been placed into protective custody, of course, learned of the murder allegations, she exclaimed, my God, I know nothing of this. It's too horrible to think about. I guess I'm a lucky girl. I mean, there's one way to look. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> So when Charlie came forward, he reported that he was one of James' customers at the barber shop, and they got to talking, and James learned that Charlie was basically a financially strapped ex-sailor, current fry cook, and was in need of some money. So Charlie told the police that, quote, James came to me early in June last year and said he had a friend who wanted to kill his wife and that it would be worth $100 to me to get a couple rattlesnakes. I said, all right, it was none of my business what he wanted the snakes for. It's According always to, a friend, right? Yeah, always a friend. Hey, go get me some snakes, Dr. Shiloh. 
Okay, no problem. You're my friend. So according to James, it was much more of a collaborative project with Charlie taking the lead. He alleged that Charlie first suggested that they kill Mary with Black Widow spiders, telling him, all you have to do is throw them in bed with her. Charlie then acquired some Black Widow spiders and provided them to James. He said that James shared with him that Mary complained about a badly swollen leg from a bite she received in her garden, but it didn't kill her. The pair then discussed other means like burning down the house. That's a broad choice right there. Poisoning her through a scratched skin with chemical and shooting her in a fake holdup. They eventually settled on murder by rattlesnake bite, but the whole ordeal turned out to be much worse than the already horrendous plan of letting the deadly snake do their dirty work. Robert James and Charlie Hope first purchased three rattlesnakes from Mike Allman at the Reptile Gardens on the Ocean Park Pier in Santa Monica, but decided that those were no good. Charlie then approached the legendary Joseph C. Houghtonbrink, known as Snake Joe at his snake farm in Pasadena. And Snake Joe later testified that Charlie told him, quote, I've got a big bet that a rattlesnake will strike and eat a rabbit, and I want the meanest thing you've got to make sure I win. Charlie purchased two six-year-old desert diamondback rattlesnakes named Lethal and Lightning. But Snake Joe later admitted he felt uneasy about the sale. He testified that later his friend Mike Allman, the guy from Ocean Park, visited and, quote, in the course of our conversation, asked me if the man who wanted some hot rattlesnakes had been to see me. I told him he had, and we talked it over, and the whole thing seemed suspicious. So this is a very small rattlesnake community. (laughs) Yeah, it also really, it makes me laugh because it, it, sends me back to that clip that was on Twitter several years ago. There's a comedian that's been on a couple of television shows, but he has one meme that went viral of him playing a Southern waitress being interviewed in a true crime documentary. And he's wearing like a big wig and he goes, well, I did see him dragging that dead horse through the back of the restaurant. And I thought, that's strange. Oh my God. This feels totally like that. It totally feels These like that. These two like, snake guys. Yeah, just... like, I, no shit. Like, of course something's going on. <laughs> and of course they didn't, you know, report it to the police, right? right. But it, they were later interviewed. James was quickly convicted on the incest charges, but then it was time for the DA's office to move forward with the murder case. James and Charlie appeared on May 6, 1937 for their arraignment handcuffed to one another, and James was overheard telling Charlie, if you plead guilty, I'll break your neck. James decided the best way to go was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, because that always works out well. Okay, sure. Well, Charlie did, in fact, plead guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for not receiving the death penalty. The murder trial lasted five weeks, and it was quite the media circus for the time. Reporters filled the courtroom, and it was even reported that actor Peter Lorre was in attendance to study James's blank face and beady shark eyes for one of his psychotic killer roles. By the way, if you've never seen the movie M, Peter Lorre plays a serial killer and he's terrifying. It's wonderful. But back to our story. During the trial, the jurors and the media learned that James and Charlie set their plan into motion on August 4th, 1935. And although their testimony was clearly filled with self-serving statements, they gave a general outline of how Mary was ultimately murdered. And it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. So James testified that Mary told him she was pregnant and he had talked her into getting an abortion. He told her that he had found a doctor that would come to their home to perform the operation. However, since the procedure was illegal, her eyes would have to be covered to protect the doctor's identity. So when the time came, he got her very liquored up on whiskey to the point where she was basically unconscious 
and then blindfolded her. And accounts differ a little bit here between his story and Charlie's story, but essentially he and Charlie either placed her on top of a table in the breakfast nook and tied her down, or they tied her to a chair all before shoving her foot into a box containing the two vicious rattlesnakes. Mary was bitten three times. She writhed around in agony, being held down by the men and the ropes, probably completely terrified that this was not the way things were supposed to go and probably already being terrified that an abortion was going to be performed in her home. Yeah. Well, the venom didn't instantly kill her. And Charlie said he was very nervous. He went out to the garage and just kind of sat in the car and was drinking and he was getting frequent updates from James. James would come out and kind of tell how she was doing. And after hours, James came out to the car and told Charlie that he finally just grew tired of waiting for her to die. So he had drowned her in the bathtub. Charlie testified, quote, I walked in and saw this girl lying on the floor just outside the bathroom door with her pajamas and slippers on. He then went on, I carried her feet. He carried her head. I laid her alongside the fish pond. Investigators testified that after James's arrest, they searched his La Cañada home and found multiple pamphlets from marriage bureaus which set up people with potential dates. Basically, it was a Lonely Hearts Club or a sort of an early matchmaking type of situation. And according to the Los Angeles Times, quote, another prize exhibit officers found in an envelope. It was a list of nearly 200 special feminine matrimonial prospects. Heavily underscored in the list was the name of a New York widow, 53 years of age, who advertised that she had an income of $10,000 annually. Close quote. Wow. Additionally, they also located a black widow's nest at the home confirming Charlie's story of the first attempt of killing Mary. He also told police that he took Mary's pink pajamas to a downtown LA incinerator to get rid of them. Investigators were able to find fragments of the pajamas right where he said they would be. So the cold-blooded killer must have started to realize his fate as the trial progressed. Again, according to the LA Times, quote, his indifference must have hidden an internal storm. Only a few minutes before being called to the stand, he suddenly became ill and had to be removed from the courtroom to recover. James himself turned the color of clay at the same time that Deputy Sheriff Tui testified to what he found when he reached the fish pond death house in La Cañada, close quote. James eventually took the stand and tried claiming that his confession had been coerced by police. And there was nothing I read that ever said that they really put on a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. And of course, he's testifying in his own defense here. And then moving on from that claim, the attorneys, as they so often did back then, had him and Charlie reenact the murder scene there in the courthouse. So I found a photograph of all of this and the caption reads, James climbed on the heavy mahogany attorney's table. He lay on his back as Mary James is supposed to have been lying. Hope was led alongside. In the little play, he was supposed to seize James's foot and jam it into the replica of the original snake box, close quote. For some reason, the court thought it was important to have the actual snakes used in the murder plot to make an appearance at the trial. Charlie had returned the snakes to Snake Joe after the murder. Snake Joe gladly marched into the courtroom with lightning and lethal in a box. Everyone's fears came true in the following moments. According to the LA Times, lethal, one of the rattlesnakes, escaped in the courtroom during the noon recess after James had spent most of the morning on the witness stand in his own defense. Like a streak of brown quicksilver, the reptile slid under a bookcase, his vicious rattling through the courtroom into hysteria. Snake Joe and another rattlesnake handler came to the rescue and put Lethal back into his box before he could hurt anyone. Well, that's freaking terrifying. Could you imagine? Oh my gosh. <laughs> As if it wasn't crazy enough, right? 
So after all of these classic courtroom dramatics, James was eventually convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death by hanging. It was reported that when the verdict was read, his eyes barely shifted and he simply said, I can take it. Robert James was housed at San Quentin and spent his last years in prison attempting to appeal his conviction. So I guess maybe he didn't think he could take it after a while. <laughs> he was trying to appeal it. Yeah. So he also found Jesus after connecting with a religious worker in the prison named Helen Atkinson, who was reported to have been quite enamored with James. And all I can say to Helen is run, girl, run. What are you doing? Seriously. <laughs> and on May 2nd, 1942, James was the last man to be put to death by hanging in the state of California. The Los Angeles Times reported on the very grim scene. Robert James mounted the 13 steps to the hangman's noose and death on San Quentin Gallows today. He was calm to the end. He was dressed in a black suit and a white collarless shirt. His red hair was neatly combed. His face was very white. There was a strange look of triumph in his sharp eyes as he glanced down at the 98 reporters, officials, and guards who stood in the high-ceilinged, raftered death house. His appearance, almost boyish, gave the impression he had been interrupted by his executioners while dressing for a dance. Mm. Really, really interesting case, I have to say, despite our, you know, kind of having a humorous take on it, because it feels almost like a little bit like Holmes. Oh, AJ you know? Holmes. Yeah. AJ Holmes, just because yeah. of the opportunity, like this guy was creating his own opportunities, right? So he's yeah. a serial, a serial offender. Yep. And I'm I'm not sure if he necessarily meets like psychopath, but he it's more like it, it's so interesting. It's about getting money, right? It's a means to an end. He certainly does not see them other as a means to an end, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So we think that, you know, at least there's his nephew, the one wife that quote unquote drowned and then Mary, but he, you nailed it. He was absolutely just creating opportunity after opportunity and, you know, $10,000, $14,000 at a time, what have you. Which would have been huge amounts for that time as well. Those were very big oh, yeah. amounts, which yeah. is also something I've never really, I mean, we laugh about it or we, we make commentary about it in today's crimes that we will comment on more recent ones. If these unlimited number of snapped episodes mm -hmm. or people taking out their spouses for insurance money, and it's just this tiny amount, like, why would you take somebody out for that amount of money? That's going to get you nowhere. Now, right. not like I'm supporting better thought in your commission of crimes, <laughs> of but $10,000, $14,000, $20,000 at the turn of the century would have been a very big deal. So yeah, no, definitely. He certainly I, wasn't the dimwit or the halfwit that, you know, the, he was described at, at the beginning. No, I mean, he was a business owner is able to open his business after completing school, you know, several times over in different States. I mean, again, could this guy be one of those that's on the cusp that could have been just a really successful business owner, but then that wasn't enough. And true, true. marrying Some, women was just too easy. Yeah, very antisocial traits, but oh, very yeah. interesting to look at that. And it's one of those that, like we say, every time with these vintage episodes, there's so much that's lost to history that if we just yeah. knew, if we had more access to interviews or background history did this guy have anyone else in his family that had these criminal features mm. did he have anyone else in his family that exhibited sort of antisocial tendencies that would have been fascinating but it's over 100 years ago and 
there's not a lot of records in that way. Yeah, no, just about. And yeah, I mean, just, I think he's one of the worst that we've covered, especially in these vintage cases. It's just a trail of devastation. But I always wonder like, what was up with the niece? Like, why was she someone that he just took to and brought out here and didn't think about, you know, you think she would have been like, sure, take out an insurance policy on me. And I'm going to say he, what was mentioned once, and probably we didn't emphasize enough was he's hitting those charm elements that successful predators with antisocial personality disorder exhibit. He was able to charm her. She was 19 years old from the South, maybe not particularly worldly. Yeah. And he promised her a lot and he had money. He drove into town with a Pierce Arrow convertible at that time would have been just very impressive for anywhere in the country. That would have been very impressive. Yeah. No, I I don't doubt he was able to get her. I'm just wondering why he didn't kill her, like what that was about. So we will never know, but there is, okay, I'll say it. Like we'll take a big, big break from rattlesnakes for a little bit. (laughs) Oh, you say that, and then something's going to happen with the rattlesnake. Something like the synchronicity just has to like right put it right there in front of us. So we will see. So yeah, there's your vintage episode this month, you guys. A nice little bite, no pun intended. Anything else before we go, Dr. Scott? I just wanted to do a shout out to all of our new Patreon members. You and I have done, each of us has done a couple of interviews on other shows that has increased our exposure to audience members. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for being patrons. And also uh, just out of the blue, a handful of, you know, full five-star reviews. Lovely reviews. Thank you. Thank you so much for just taking the time to write a review like that. And we don't even mind the ones that are less than stellar. We can take it. And especially we're always open to critique and we want to be better. But for you, those of you who go out of your way to leave reviews for us, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, 
social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks.